Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. We're doing a special edition today. Uh, yesterday was election day. So uh, Hugo Lindgren, our producer, and Megan Collins, our former producer, friend, and, and my chief of staff, uh, are both joining me to talk about the election results. And we're going to put this up today on Wednesday, and it's going to be the only podcast we put up this week um, because I feel like this is fundamentally uh, why you guys listen is, is for this type of information and analysis. So we'll, we'll make this the focal point for this week and then return to our normal approach next week. So uh, with all that said, Mac and Hugo, welcome. Hello. Hello. So I want to I want to promote Megan here for a second. Then the reason she's on the podcast, besides her astute political commentary, um, is that she is uh, grew up half in Virginia and half in New Jersey. Uh, she'll obviously be referring to that a little bit. So she has particular insight into the two big gubernatorial races from last night. Yeah. Yes, as as most eight year olds do. <laughs> well, she's so she soaked in the culture. Yeah. So the yeah, Christie and Bush era politics. Yeah. So how are you guys feeling after last night? Not surprised, actually. Yeah. That's no, not it's not emotional in the way that other elections are. It's just sort of like, yeah, you guys have been, you guys meeting the Democrats have been fairly fucking incompetent now that you're back in power, and this is what happens. Yeah, it's a post check. And also the candidates themselves, right? Is there anybody where you're like, oh, my God, please, this guy's got to win? Like, you know, as, as no, human well, beings. I would say this. So, so I personally like Phil Murphy quite a bit. You do, okay. And, and respect him and... Uh, it looks like he will hang on to win. Right. That's, that's important. Um, I, you know, I don't know Terry McAuliffe, but to me, he's just the ultimate hack, right? He's an insider hack, and I think at least part of the reason why Virginia voters re- rejected him is they didn't want to retread, right? They wanted someone maybe who was new and thoughtful and different. And maybe the Democrat was going to lose no matter who it was, but in retrospect, McAuliffe was the worst possible choice. Uh, I mean, I agree. Uh, Megan, do you want to chime in there? Because uh, uh, we were having that sort of discussion beforehand that McAuliffe just seemed like the worst type of candidate for this environment. Agreed. And I also think that uh, I didn't pay too much attention to his campaign, but that he didn't distance himself from what what Northam did with teachers, with COVID. And I think just kind of ignoring the fact that a lot of people were pissed off with how he handled it. And not, and not only that, he brought him out on the trail. I just think that something like that automatically just casts the same yeah. legacy. And, and part of the problem also, McAuliffe is a creature of the Clintons, right? He was Bill Clinton's finance guy. He is 100 percent a manifestation of the two of them. Right. And they're now rejected across the board by everyone, <laughs> right? So Republicans have always hated them. They continue to. Progressives hate them because they feel like they're too conservative and sort of an error of the past. And moderates are just sort of like annoyed that Hillary managed to blow it to Trump and that Bill Clinton's such a scumbag in real life, despite, you know, having been, I think, an, an OK president in some ways. Um, you know, just clearly anyone that's that close with Jeffrey Epstein can't be the best person. So you put all that together. And I think if, if you say someone is, is part of the Clinton world, the initial reaction from people today across the board is like, well, I don't know. Yeah, wretch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, so the Republican candidate, the next governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, is hardly an impressive political figure. I mean, we were talking about this before. So he's a uh, – there are two facts about him. You know, he played Division One basketball. Did you know that? He was a, he's six foot seven and he played at Rice and not very much. I think he scored – 80 points in his entire career. but And Rice still. is not exactly a powerhouse, but still, it's yeah, Division yeah. I basketball. It's Division I basketball, exactly. And wait, the other the other fact, he it, it in Wikipedia, it, it listed his wealth at $440 million. Um, and what was 
interesting about that to me. So he's a guy goes to the right schools, um, meets the right people, works in the financial industry, um, and literally amasses dynastic wealth, uh, doing not much good for the world or really anything uh, that is remotely like risk taking. And now he's got four hundred forty million dollars and thinks he should be uh, the governor of Virginia. With a candidate like McAuliffe, they seem to not, the Democrats don't really have a leg to stand on in terms of making a real case against whether this is the kind of person with this kind of background that, uh, you know, that, well, that we should be, you know, electing to the higher offices yeah, in the land. There's, there's two problems with your, th- your okay. analysis. Pro- problem number one is I actually think that compared to the average person who does run for governor, he's much more impressive, right? Really? Like, Look, he was the CEO of Carlisle. That is a very hard thing. Co-CEO. Co-CEO. Still, very, very hard thing <laughs> to do. Um, $440 million is a lot of money. And I can just tell you, as someone who really makes money for a living, like nobody gives it to you, right? you got to work really hard, and you gotta you got to be better than people and figure shit out to be able to make I, there's that no There's no doubt about that. So, so the point is, I, I think he's more uh, – I don't agree with his views, but I think he is more fundamentally impressive – than the majority of people in the numbskulls who run for office. So that's that's number one. And then number two is, you know, we don't, I mean, we talk about this in this podcast all the time. We, we don't try to find the best and brightest to serve in office. We find people who can navigate the political system and occasionally when they're populists, kind of reach into our anger and, and let us feel better or self-righteous for, for a moment or two. So it's just like everything you're saying would make sense if the world were totally different, but it's not. <laughs> the world were totally different. I just think that ultimately with all the with, with all the issues of income inequality, that electing people to office who have, have chosen their career path to single-mindedly make as much money as they can, it's just not a great qualification for like leadership us to a better place. I just don't see that. No, as but in, in fairness to him, he was running as the Republican, right? He wasn't running so, as a Democrat focused on like, look, we saw this when when Mike Bloomberg, for example, ran for president, which is in the moment that we're in right now, uh, if you are an incredibly wealthy person running as a Democrat in a primary, it's somewhere between hard and impossible. If you're the Republican in a general election where basically Youngkin was the beneficiary of right time, right place, right, right more than anything else, uh, then then it's okay. But I will also say, and I'm partly saying this to get a rise out of Megan, but <laughs> yesterday was a national rejection uh, of the left and of the progressive movement. And it, I think what has happened is the progressive movement has captured a disproportionate amount of attention, not power, right. but attention. So reporters pay them so much attention because they all live and work and, and sort of exist on on Twitter and on social media. And so it seems like and because also they are all like, you know, jihadists in the way that any ideologue is, where it's like if I don't get what I want, I'll blow it all up. Um, you put those two things together, and I think there's a feeling from voters that the left has gotten too powerful and out of control. And so you saw that in the Buffalo election last night. You saw that in Eric Adams winning, really the primary more than the general, but Eric Adams winning. You saw that in the rejection of the referendum to abolish the police in Minneapolis uh, and a bunch of other things. So I I, I do think that, uh, you know, for example, Biden, who has governed in a pretty or tried to govern in a pretty progressive way, which is not really what he ran. So our, our friend Howard 
Wolfson. Wolfson, who we talk about from time to time on this podcast. We should have him come on again soon. So he's been on. Yeah. Uh, He has been arguing for a while that, you know, he ran as Johnson kind of, I mean, sorry, Biden ran as a moderate and is now trying to govern as a super progressive. And one of the reasons he is failing, both in terms of his poll numbers and the lack of any tangible accomplishments, is this is not what the voters actually want. Um, since you said that to get a rise out of Megan, I think we need to turn yeah, to yeah, Megan. Let her defend um, the progressives. I, yeah, I mean, I don't think everything that you said is wrong. Uh, I think <laughs> <laughs> if it that. were in a different world, <laughs> yeah, some of it would might be correct. right. Yeah, um, if we lived in a different world, I do agree that Twitter, especially, gives this impression that there are a lot more, you know, as you would put it, radical progressives than there actually are, and there's definitely a disproportionate amount of attention on that. Do, I think that that we're. The thing that's missing on this is where are the moderates? Where is the centrists that are getting a message out? Because right now it seems that the left is the only one that's really yeah. trying well, to even do that. It's in fairness to the centrists, although you're right. The left is – the reason they have this proportionate amount of attention and influence is because they are good at this. Yeah. When you're screaming on either side that everyone is evil and this is the only solution everything else uh, – people pay attention, or at least the press pays attention. And when you're like, let's try to be prudent and cautious and moderate and balance this and that, like, you've lost everyone right away. And so it is a, a harder message uh, to get out there. By the way, this would be true if you're a Republican moderate or a Democrat moderate. It's, yeah. just, it's just harder. But what are the moderates? I guess the question is, progressives, a lot of different progressive groups, you know what they're fighting for. What are moderates fighting for right now? Yeah, well, look, so if you take Josh, my brother-in-law, I think what he has tried to do— We'll is say who he is, even though— Josh Geisheimer is right. the kind of leader of the centrist Democrats in, in the House and is also married to my sister uh, and someone I talk to all the time. That's why I think he made infrastructure his cause, because he said, I need some sort of tangible manifestation of what I believe that yeah. people can relate to and understand. Uh, and that's why he picked that. So I, th- I think you're right, and I think if you don't— pick it. But just just to be even a little more depressing here, <laughs> if you don't be more depressing, please. If you don't pass the infrastructure bill and the spending bill, then you're maybe heading to a world where the Biden presidency has no accomplishments and then all of a sudden you're at a, a the Republicans capturing the House next year and then he goes into re-election with nothing to show for it all and that's a problem whether it's Biden or Harris, especially up against Trump. On the flip side, you could argue so – I texted Josh earlier and said, OK, so, so how do you interpret last night for what you're trying to do? Because Josh right now – I don't think I'm portraying any confidences here – has been trying to, on kind of behalf of the House moderates, work out both the, 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 the overall spending bill in concert with the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill, I don't think anyone's really debating what should go in anymore. They're just debating whether, when it should be voted on. Right. Um, and Josh did say, I think it will spur people to reality and action – Partly he probably met people on the left being a little less crazy, but partly also people in the, in the middle saying, we got to have some accomplishments here. But two other – this is where it gets depressing. Okay. One. <laughs> yeah, that sounded all right. If you look at both of those bills, they're going to have to do something that does not come naturally to most people in Washington, which is execute and implement them incredibly efficiently and well for real people to see an impact before the 2024 presidential election. Right. So like, yeah, infrastructure in theory is great and it's needed and it does create ribbon cuttings and groundbreakings and union jobs and all of this stuff. But you they're going to have to sort of break every rule and code around how to make this money, get this money out the door 
to have anyone feel or see any of it before 24. Because just passing the, the passing the bill. Passing the bill is, is just the first step, right? right? And like now you have these giant bureaucracies on the federal and state side that are, and local that are trying to like figure all of it out. And all you know for sure is they will take too long. Yeah. And then even on the on the other stuff, look, I, I support a lot of the, the programs I'm, I'm, uh, in, in the bill, but like it's hard to create like a national child care program or whatever they're doing, right? In fact, one of the things that I, I've been using to argue for more money within this for school meals is we already do it. It already works. We know it works, right? right? Just start paying for more. Yeah, so yeah. Just, just give more kids the food, right? So politically, the problem is even if both of these bills are transformative in a way, they are going to have to work unbelievably hard to make them felt before the election. And there's very little so far in this presidential administration that would give you the confidence to think they can do that. Well, it's like that term that you heard a lot around the, the financial crisis when Obama had taken over the, you know, the shovel ready was like the, yeah, the big exactly. thing they said all the time. Like, yeah. what can they what can they get going immediately? What do you think they I mean, I know you're not an expert in. The, well, no, in, I, so I, Bob and uh, I, Bob Greenlee, who uh, is our COO, but kind of our smart, smartest person here. Uh, <laughs> and, and Bob, Bob. Megan and I, and I take offense. Yeah. Just FYI. Yeah. Worked, I don't think anyone Bob's I don't, I'm not, maybe my sister would object to that. I don't think anybody else would. Uh, maybe Jordan would. Uh, but Bob and I were talking about this the other day because when we were together in Illinois government, we were responsible for the capital budget right. and thinking about it. So I said to him, okay, here's my concern. What do you do? And we're actually working on a new column together about this specific thing. Um, has, but, he, has he pointed out some things? that? that yeah, I mean, I th- here's what you'd have to do. It's just a couple of things. One is... Um, you'd have to suspend a lot of procurement rules. Now, procurement rules are in place usually to avoid corruption and favoritism and everything else, but they also just make things incredibly slow. You're going to have to classify things as emergencies or there are workarounds like what's called like a sole source, which is, you know, you don't have to do a full RFP process if there's only one vendor that can possibly fulfill the need. So they're going to have to fuck around with the, the procurement code, number one. Number two... Um, they're going to have to shovel the money out to states and cities that are really ready to go on these projects. In a perfect world, it's already existing projects that they're then enhancing as opposed to— And they have to be in swing states. Yeah, (laughs) they have to be in swing states. Right. And it's also just going to require incredible competence out of the Biden administration to say, okay, we have 1.2 or $3 trillion, whatever the infrastructure bill is— Here's how we're going to push every penny out as quickly as possible. And I have to say, you look at – because a lot of it's transportation spending. You you look at Pete Buttigieg so far – and by the way, I supported him for president initially. Um, He doesn't seem to be able to accomplish anything at at DOT. So being – turns out being mayor of South Bend is not the perfect training for running the rest of the free world. Um, And so the guy who is charged – they need the most to be effective – has so far managed to, you know, become con- sort of one of the faces of, of ineptness of this administration. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, uh, this was actually where I was going to start the conversation, um, but then we just got rolling, so we didn't. Um, but there was this tweet that I saw that I, that I really I really liked, and it was referring uh, specifically to Virginia, but I think spoke to the larger kind of political themes last night. The tweet was, the results in Virginia 100% validated my priors. There, I just read all today's newspapers for you. Who was the tweet from? Uh, it was from a guy named Mark Dow. I don't even know who exactly that is. I think he has a whole – I'm going to look up who he is. Um, he's one of those people I followed a long time ago. Um, probably just a you know self-important journalist. <laughs> self-important. As, as much as like Twitter is annoying right now, it's also probably has the best takes. 
like post election people get clever. Uh, wait, do you do you keep up on Twitter, Megan? I know she does. I, know, I do. I, know that I do Bradley not tweet though. From uh, I ban myself. And I know occasionally I'll get a random email from. I get a lot of emails from Megan. But I'll get one sometimes. It's like clearly a pep talk. And I'm like, obviously, I'm getting the shit kicked out of me on Twitter right now because she wouldn't be sending me this like, you should feel good about what you're doing this or there. <laughs> when and you get a pep talk, and Megan, I'm not, you know there's when some you get a, When you get a pep talk out of nowhere where you're not aware of a problem, I'm like, wow, I must be getting my ass yeah. kicked right now. Yeah, yeah that's, very, that's very smart of you, yeah, Brad. Twitter's a cruel place, but sometimes I, I follow a lot of comedians. That's On my Twitter, it's like comedians and some journalists, and that's pretty much it. Um, Mark Dow runs something called Behavioral Macro, so he's an economist. Um, so priors. I like this idea of priors because— Tell me how you interpret it. It just means, like, if you went in last night thinking, like, hey, the problem with the Democrats is they're kowtowing to the, the commies on the left, um, you know, hey, guess what? The results show that we shouldn't have kowtowed to the commies on the left. Um, so it just basically it confirms whatever you went into to the evening believing were the problems. So my question to you is, what about any across any board, whether it was, um, you know, the, the gubernatorial races, anything you saw in those results or conversations you've had since with clients or, yeah, or the brother-in-law? Well, or, or, yeah, it's pretty simple. You, you know where I'm going to go with this, which is mobile voting. But fundamentally— well, Wait, that is your prior, though, and I do want to get right, to mobile voting. So I'm telling you why my prior was—oh, you're, you're asking me to, to, to unprove a prior, not confirm well, a prior. Well, not even unprove, but see where one is challenged or, or, or made you question it or, or at least presented new data at the very— least. We, I do, we do want to get to mobile voting because I, it's certainly a legitimate subject in this context. Um, but I, but I, that, that is your problem. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I was pleased but surprised by Byron Brown and Buffalo winning as a writing candidate and winning by that much. And part of the reason that I was surprised is it kind of invalidates the analysis that we just gave around Terry McAuliffe because Byron Brown is also a political hack who has been in office forever, <laughs> and his and only... He, well, he really, I mean, he brought Buffalo back from the brink, right? I mean, he... Yeah, right. <laughs> Buffalo's fucking Shanghai right now. Shenzhen. Um, and um, the only real... Like, I thought about for a second giving him money, and then I was like, because he's running as a socialist. I'm like, wait, I know Byron Brown. I'm not giving that guy money. Um, <laughs> Can't stoop that low. Yeah, so like... So that was one where I'm happy at the outcome, right. but it does kind of this this notion of I was enjoying putting together this sort of narrative in my head around Democrats lost the Virginia election the minute they nominated Terry McAuliffe. Right. Um, and then the Byron Brown thing kind of undermined that. Does it prove anything to you? That, I mean, I, I guess it's not incredible. It's not unprecedented that a writing candidate is able to win, um, but it's pretty unusual. Uh, it is. I mean, usually it, the writing candidate is a current or former elected who somehow Got screwed the up the primaries. Right. Like Lisa Murkowski did that in the Republican uh, Alaska Senate race. and But again, she had been in office for a long time. You have right. to have incredibly high name ID to pull that off. Right. And you have to be running at someone who maybe in the primary with super low turnout kind of worked, but then once exposed them to the broader public, they do not. Uh, I assume you guys both voted in New York yesterday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and so two votes for Sliwa? Yeah. I voted. <laughs> I do have two cats. So. I've, I, I was more, um, I, was, I think I was a kind of in a generous mood yesterday morning because I voted for the Democrat in every election except Comptroller where I could not vote for Brad Lander because he is a self-righteous, arrogant, fucking fraud. <laughs> Easy. Um, 
but just the, the opponent was like a Trump. I disagree. So, one disagree. So I just bluffed that one blind. But but otherwise, even the judges who were running contested, I was I voted for them. Oh, that's good. It was nice of me. Yeah, you voted for all the the propositions, the proposals. I yeah, but I lost most of them. I was no on the first. So the first one was something. You were no on redistricting because it was like read to me is just like actually made it worse, not better. It wasn't like I didn't. Once I looked at it, I was like this is this is just more New York corruption dressed up as reform. But uh, yeah, by and large, the stuff that I voted for. But but and anyway, point is. Yes, and the other noteworthy thing was I was pretty much the only person. Now was a, maybe it was eh, it was nine thirty in the morning, so it wasn't that or that late or weird of a time, and it was empty. Well, I voted at like seven forty-five last night, and there were people there. There were more people than what I usually experience in the morning. But I don't know if it's just hybrid work life now. Well, did you vote yesterday, Hugo? I did not. Right. And I did vote in the primary, and I did want to vote, and I thought about voting, and I didn't vote. And that, and that sort of – see, I actually thought about yesterday when I was left the polling place conducting an internal survey to ask people here, who in your lives – New Yorkers – who in your lives didn't, didn't vote? Because obviously people who work here generally vote because right. that's what we do. But like, Does it hurt my standing here that I didn't vote? I mean, No, we didn't expect them. <laughs> uh, like I'm sure I don't think Harper voted yesterday. Oh really? And it's and if you ask Harper, are you a regular voter? She would say yes, and right. she's not wrong about it. But the part of the reason, and it gets back to mobile voting, part of the reason why the system is so screwed up is even people who read the newspaper and want to vote and are sort of try to be socially conscious in whatever side. And you could be from the right, the left, whatever you want. They don't really vote that much. Yeah. Um, and, well, wouldn't you say, yeah. especially when it feels like it's already predetermined? Sure. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so that's also part of the problem is even on the even in the elections where you ask people, did they feel like are you, like you would qualify as a generally engaged, concerned citizen? Yeah. You're law abiding. You're tax paying. You're informed on some the years news. Pay. But yeah, mayor of New York City, which you you've spent your entire almost your whole life living here, other than school, um, and it is the job that has a bigger impact on your day-to-day than any other elected official, you didn't participate. So I have two questions or two thoughts to share about, about New York City mayor. First of all, I got – I was reading some of the – you know, Adams is going to – it's going to be kind of fun in a sense, he right? Is fun. I mean, as long he as, is as really it, fun. As long as we're not facing totally. the true economic meltdown of New York City, you know, which we might be. But, it, you know. He, he is not going to be born. But so I was thinking about this. I don't know if you guys you guys know who Jimmy Walker was, right? The yeah. mayor of New York in the in the twenties. Yeah. So he was the last true bon vivant to be the the um, the mayor of well, New York. You know the best part about it, you know, there was a, there are a, a lot of good ones. But what's the best? Uh, the one part? I was going to say right. was there was an illegal casino in Central Park. <laughs> right. And he was there like every night. <laughs> Yeah, no, he was fantastic. In in I mean, in the ways that, in retrospect, like if you love a guy who's on the take and like in the pocket of mobsters, and um, yeah. and you know basically could. I, I, he was I, the Buddy Cianci of his day. By the way, I left Buddy off the list. I realized later of the most. Oh, fascinating you did. Oh, we, we talked about the most fascinating. Oh yeah, um, last week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I realized that. Oh, later Buddy's got to make the Buddy, list. I think he was. I um. So when I was in law school, uh, I I realized that. If I invited people who I thought were interesting to come speak at the University of Chicago Law School, to like, and it was like the University of Chicago Law School Democrats, a lot of people would say yes simply because it's prestigious, right? right. Just like when I ask people to speak in my class at Columbia, they say yeah, sure. yes. So I invited Buddy Seans, and I was, and I had enough money from this whatever the school gave us for the club to pay for people's travel expenses, right? right? So I was, you, you come and and we'll pay for. It. 
we wouldn't pay them a speaking fee, but at least we'd cover the fl- right. flight and hotel. Buddy Cianti came to Chicago, and I spent like two days hanging out with him. It was awesome. I mean, you know, he was exactly whatever. So Buddy Cianti for the listeners. Did you guys like know, get drunk or something? Like what did we you do? We like went out to a bunch of meals. <laughs> we like, you know, I like he would, you know, I was sitting in meetings with him that he was doing back with his staff in Providence on the phone. Like, you know, I worked for my. You know, or actually, at that time, I had more front blue But anyway, um, Buddy Cianci was the mayor of Providence. He's dead now. Um, an incredibly interesting figure. Wait, wildly... did he stab? Who did he? No, no, he didn't stab, but he hit someone. Was he stabbed? No, no, he wasn't stabbed. Okay. He went to j- one of the times he went to jail was he beat someone up with an ashtray, like a like a like stone, a heavy ashtray, heavy yeah. ashtray, and then maybe put a cigar out in the guy's eye. Now, the guy right, did, there was something about an eye. I remember the that. guy did yeah. sleep with his wife. So it wasn't completely unjustified. Right. Okay, but, that makes fascinating. But but nonetheless, Buddy Sanchez was a fascinating dude, and uh, and I regret leaving him off the list. So yeah, so 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 we were talking about Adams for a second. Um, bon vivant. I can't remember where I was going to go with that. Um, but uh, it, it makes me think of a point. So you know, maybe Eric Adams will be a sort of nose to the grindstone kind of city manager, or maybe he won't. Maybe he'll just love the perks of the office and. Uh, hang out with rich guys and and go on their boats and go to nightclubs and all that, but it, it, it just that idea that 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 he 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 succeeded as a candidate. We still don't know whether he's going to succeed as a city manager. We were talking Bradley the other day about your your sort of developing theory. Yeah, I want you to just explain it. Sure. And, so and this, this was pre-election, right. but you know, there's the. And, and, and I started thinking about this when De Blasio said he was going to run for governor because everyone, you know, of course went to me and wanted me to trash it. And, uh, you didn't want to do that, though. You no, like, Of course. You, yeah. I have so much respect for him. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about this, and I was like, and I've thought this before also, the, the, the job of running for office and the job of holding office are two very different jobs. We conflate the two because, one, it's supposed to be the same thing, and, two, we can't really understand why – the more attractive thing to do, appealing thing to do, would be to run something, right, and, and to impact people and change the world and all that. But in reality, if you look at a lot of elected officials, they have the skill set to run for office. They're quite good at that. And it is a completely different skill set than governing, right? And so Bill de Blasio, almost everyone would agree, is a disaster at governing, but, you know, when he ran for mayor in 2013, he won. He ran a good campaign. He was public advocate before that city councilman. He's won a lot of elections. He's good at running for office. It doesn't. I don't think he wins this gubernatorial race, but I was sort of cautioning someone to not totally count him out. Um, when I worked for Rod Blagojevich, Rod would literally say, I did my job. Now you guys do yours, meaning I won the election. I'll be back in a couple of years to do it again. And in between, it's got nothing to do with me. Um, and, and while that sounded, the first time I heard it, nuts, I was like, I got to move back to New York immediately. After a while, I was like, you know what? One, he's he's right. And two, he's only capable of running for office. He doesn't have the skills needed to actually govern. So um, they are two independent skill sets. And oftentimes when you're looking at a candidate, I think what you have to ask yourself is, is this someone, assuming that you like them, right? Yeah. Do I like them because they are good at appealing to me? Or do I like them because I think they'll actually be good at doing this job? And I think frequently we vote for people based on the former, when in reality it needs to be the latter. So if you take Mike Bloomberg, as example, the only person I've ever worked for who was much more interested and much better at the governing part than the electoral part, he won because of, and just barely, 
because 9-11 had happened a few weeks earlier and shocked everyone to the point where our mentality was different. It was just like, who is the person that can get us through this? And then all of a sudden, enough people said, this guy as opposed to Mark Green, who was just a typical political hack. Um, but putting that aside, most of the time, that's not how we think about it. It's not how we vote. And as a result, we elect people with the wrong skill set. Right. Um, so last night, I, I try to avoid MSNBC all the time, but especially on big evenings. Um, my wife, however, loves it. So I come into the bedroom last night, and I got Robert Gibbs is on there. And I, I, I'm, this is a total exaggeration, but it seemed like he used the term wake-up call about 20 times in two minutes. Um, he's still at McDonald's. You know, I, he can't be because – well, maybe he is, but I, I don't know if I, if I was paying him $5 million a year at McDonald's to, like, look after the, the public perception of my cheeseburgers, I um, – I would um, uh, I would probably not let him freelance his political views, but maybe he is. Yeah. I don't know. Um, in any case, um, so I was thinking about this term "wake up call." So "wake up call" is like, oh, someone is calling to wake you up, and you know you got to get on with your day. So is that what this is? Is this a wake up call for the Democrats, or is this like? To use another no, hideous cliche, is this a five alarm fire? It, like it's like we got to get out of the building. Well. It's kind of neither to a certain extent because, number one, when the same pattern happens in every single election cycle, which is someone runs for office saying the problem with the system is just no one's been brilliant and and transformational until me, and therefore, (laughs) if you elect me, I will change everything, then, of course, they fail to do that. People feel betrayed and upset, and then they vote for the other party, or the people from their party stay home, and the other people from the other party come out more, whatever it is. like, even if you just take the last three presidents, and I think we've said this on the podcast before, right. Obama was sort of post-political, and yet at the end of the day wasn't able to, like, fix America. You think he did a couple good things, but still. Um, Trump was certainly not stereotype conventional, but was, you know, the disaster of all disasters. And Biden tried on the, what we actually need is sort of competence and experience, and that's not working, right? And the reason none of this works is because the system is so broken, hence mobile voting, but the system is so broken that none of these people, no matter how talented they are, and by the way, Joe Biden's, you know, not super talented, but Barack Obama obviously is an exceptionally talented man, and Trump in his own insane way is really talented, right? right. The thing he's good at, he's the genius at it. So, and yet they couldn't succeed, right? So the point is, structurally, the system is so screwed up that it's not surprising what happened yesterday because this is what happens all the time. Agreed. So what's our metaphor for what last night was? If it's not a five-alarm fire, it's not a wake-up call, it's just... It's another reflection of the fact that American politics is broken. Uh, I wanted a metaphor. Just so I'm not giving you one. Okay. American, <laughs> it's my podcast. Uh, American politics You're good at shit broken. like that, Bradley. I think if you took a second, you'd have a good one. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to it next week. Uh, Go and and people's, people are frustrated. Look, take a half a step back here. And maybe being the parent of teenagers has given me some perspective on this, which is being a person in the world is hard, right? Basically for everybody all of the time, right? And then if you combine that with a government that can't solve your problems, an economic system that most people feel like is rigged against them and is rigged against most people, so you combine all of their frustration and anger with where their place in life um, on top of uh, a, a totally dysfunctional political system. And, like, this is exactly what's going to happen every time. That's also where I think the Republic. I, 
I just get worried when the conversation ends up like kind of Democrats and Republicans playing on the same field where I think Republicans right now it's win it's a winning strategy but it's a lot of there's still a lot to count in the fact that they run on misinformation and racial bigoted stereotypes and issues like they blow it out of proportion I just think that the Democrats right now don't know how to like wrap their hands around it and get it together I just think that there's two different views and it's the moderates and the progressives and at the end of the day, Republicans know that. So they're just causing chaos. Right. But the progressives, I, I guess the way they see it is the status quo is unacceptable. So whether we f- – it's just – it's binary. Either we yeah. succeed in our ideas and if we fail, it's all failure regardless of whether it's moderate Democrats or Republicans or anyone else. Um, that is the argument that I think they both believe and put forward. I think the risk is it's not the same thing if you have – anyone but a super progressive in office. Because if you think about Joe Biden is going to appoint judges that generally will protect a woman's right to choose. Donald Trump appointed judges who... So like... But that's why progressives showed up to vote for Biden. Like at the end of the day... No, they did. You're right. You're absolutely right. But then by behaving in ways that that was so easy for Republicans to then use against them to win all those elections last night, um, they are undermining... You know, in in their pursuit of purity and perfection, they're passing up the opportunity to actually help the people they care about. Uh, Yes and no. I think that the Democrats don't know how to get a message out there that could still be progressive. I think, for instance, like talking about how government's dysfunctional, something that never gets raised, and it's because the Republicans have kind of hitched their wagon to these anti-vaxxers, misinformation train, that the government was able to like get out the vaccines pretty damn fast. And I think that that's the biggest accomplishment that Biden has done yet. But you don't hear about it at all. You don't hear about how the Democrats like, you know, that's a bureaucracy, but it worked out for us. Yep. But I think Republicans, are, they're really smart. Uh, the strategists are really smart. They've taken now this anti-vax, you know, misinformation train and they're running it through everything. Right. And, I just think it's and just, look about think about what we talked about in some earlier podcasts, which is the supply chain and Christmas. Um you know, Bradley's that, Christmas doomsday scenario. Well, just we're going to have to get a trademark. It on seems that. to me Biden's <laughs> numbers are already pretty bad, based on things like Afghanistan or the border, which are problems. Although I actually think he was right about Afghanistan, but yeah. but nonetheless, they're conceptual problems for ninety five percent of us. Right? Yeah. Most of us don't have a family member stuck at the border. Most of us do not have a family member who was stationed in Afghanistan, or at least went just now. Yeah. So therefore. You don't get like so. I, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast the other day or not. So I asked the other day. I was reading the article about the new iPhone. It said that the 13 Max has a, two more hours of battery life. So I sent Basil a text and said, "Can you please get me this? No problem." <laughs> I get a text back from him a few hours later saying, "It's not going to be till December 3rd." It's stuck on a supply- yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, Portable "That's fine." I, you know, I, for me, but. I was just just trying to get longer battery life. You should send him to the port in Los Angeles right. and just see but if you can get if, one there. But 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 Christmas gifts, different stores. So if I was trying to buy that iPhone for someone for Christmas and I couldn't get it, and the Republicans are doing an excellent job, said it, even though Biden doesn't run the ports or certainly doesn't control manufacturing in China. Um, he is, I think, about to sort of get the blame for all of this. Br- Bradley, you, you panicked the crap out of me about on the on the gift things because you told me you already had the the Xbox. I got, I got Lyle's and one thing. So I ordered Sarah. I haven't got anything for Abby yet. I ordered her. Oh, you're screwed, dude. I need to. Well, um, Michaela usually tells me what to get. Oh, really? She owes me an email. So we got. You know what you could get? You could get what I got for Sarah. I got. Um, we got those inflatable stand up paddle boards. 
you know, the ones that are that apparently are as good as the non-inflatable ones. Well, so we I have got, two of the regular ones. Oh, okay. Well, fancy yeah. you. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, but the problem is I ordered them, and they were literally there the next day. They arrived, and Sarah was like, them. why are these huge boxes, and why do they say paddleboard? I was like, N- nothing. Yeah, nothing? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not Mistake? I'm sending it back. Um, so l- let's talk about the uh, – is it the elephant in the room? I don't think it's an elephant. Um, the, the actual room we're sitting in is too small for an elephant. Yeah, yeah it'd be a small fit. elephant in here. Yeah. Um, so – Biden last night, are we – one thing that's clear from reading the papers this morning, Biden is in a narrative nosedive that is just, you know, like heading straight for a fiery crash. Um, what is the thing – we talked about a little bit about not just passing a bill but getting the, you know, getting yeah. the stuff into the world, getting people seeing the government doing things in, in their actual lives. Um, but from a from a from just a purely sort of results-oriented political thing yeah is last night like do you feel like more pessimistic about his chances um than than you did going in i mean oh well no because no. arguably like if if you take my text with josh from earlier and, right. and assume that he's right and it then pushes everyone who's sitting at the table you know he's with you know the uh, jay pal and everyone else if it pushes all of them to say shit let's just figure this out and get it done and we'll all stop being you know just insisting on what we want no matter what, um, then it may push forward those two bills, which is good. However, what I then fear is Washington will do what Washington always does, which is say, oh, we've solved the problem. We passed a bill. Like, that doesn't really trickle back to regular voters in in any way. It's just reporters and Twitter and whatever else. Uh, And I think, you know, you pass these two bills on December 18th, and then a week later, people don't get their Christmas gifts. Like, you'll get no benefit from that whatsoever. So um, it it might be good, but ultimately, politically at least, it's only going to be good if, number one, they can actually move this money out the door and show people the benefits of these bills and not just, like, that the white paper from someone who went to Yale wrote, um, number one. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I told Bob Greenlee that I would stop beating up on Yale on this podcast, so apologies for doing <laughs> yeah. that. Poor, poor uh, Yale. They yeah. feel so bad. They've been getting letters yeah. and letters about how they feel so beaten um, up on firewall. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's number one. Um, uh, n- number two is uh, Biden's got to find tangible things to deliver to voters, even if it's through executive orders, administrative action, that is more than just trying to prevent the left from criticizing him. Most of his stuff, and by the way, I agree with all the climate stuff he's doing and everything else, but most of it seems mainly designed to keep the left off of his back. That's not his only problem. It's a problem, but he's got a bunch of other problems, and they don't seem to see that at all, because again, they live in this absolute bubble of all bubbles, right? But the third is this, which is and this is the one piece of, of optimism for, for Biden, which is the world right now moves so fast and shit changes so fast that, like, if you look back at the election results of 2020, if not for COVID, Trump wins re-election, right? Because he didn't lose by very much after totally screwing up a once-in-a-century thing, right? right. That, that completely dominated everyone's lives. Right. So t- something could still happen, good or bad. That could sink Biden or could really help him. Well, that's I have to say, I think that and I would imagine you disagree with me on this. And it's an unpopular opinion for moderates. But I believe that there shouldn't be any bills passed until the Voting Rights Act is restored completely. 
I don't think that there is a realistic future. One, I also am so pessimistic that with infrastructure, I think it's obviously very important. I think the care economy is part of infrastructure, but I don't have any faith that we're going to be able to get that all done by 2024. The only thing that I look to that I think is I think that younger generation progressives are scared shitless, and I can't blame them. And I think that the Voting Rights Act is something that actually will protect us from kind of government overthrown by Trump. I don't see any other way to win other than that. And I think that if the Democrats, that's something that every Democrat can get behind, ultimately. I just think now it's like we're having to compete with each other on what's more important. But ultimately, come 2024, if there is no protection around voting rights, I don't know what how we get anything done. Yeah, well, unless they get rid of the filibuster, I don't see that. Yeah. Happening. Look, there's a lot more to talk about, but I think it's a good place to leave it um, okay. for now. Megan, great. thank you for joining us. We're going to have thank to you. bring yeah. you back. That was really good. That's um, great. Thanks, guys. And so we'll be back uh, with our regularly programmed episode next Tuesday. On Tuesday, yeah. Okay. See you guys then. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.